Chapter Twenty One of Arthur Mervyn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Arthur Mervyn by Charles Brockton Brown. Chapter Twenty One. He whom I had accompanied to the midst of the river, whom I had imagined that I saw sink to rise no more, was now before me. Though incapable of precluding the groundless belief of preternatural visitations. I was able to banish the phantom almost at the same instant at which it appeared. Welbeck had escaped from the stream alive, or had, by some inconceivable means, been restored to life. The first was the most plausible conclusion. It instantly engendered a suspicion that his plunging into the water was an artifice intended to establish a belief of his death. His own tale had shown him to be versed in frauds and flexible to evil, but was he not associated with Colville? And what but a compact in iniquity could bind together such men? While thus musing, Welbeck's countenance and gesture displayed emotions too vehement for speech. The glances that he fixed upon me were unsteadfast and wild. He walked along the floor, stopping at each moment and darting looks of eagerness upon me. A conflict of passions kept him mute. At length, advancing to the bed on the side of which I was now sitting, he addressed me. What is this? Are you here? In defiance of pestilence, are you actuated by some demon to haunt me, like the ghost of my offences? And cover me with shame? What have I to do with that dauntless yet guiltless front? With that foolishly confiding and obsequious yet erect and unconquerable spirit? Is there no means of evading your pursuit? Must I dip my hands a second time in blood and dig for you a grave by the side of Watson? These words were listened to with calmness. I suspected and pitied the man, but I did not fear him. His words and his looks were indicative less of cruelty than madness. I looked at him with an air compassionate and wistful. I spoke with mildness and composure. Mr. Welbeck, you are unfortunate and criminal. Would to God I could restore you to happiness and virtue, but though my desire be strong, I have no power to change your habits or rescue you from misery. I believed you to be dead. I rejoice to find myself mistaken. While you live, there is room to hope that your errors will be cured, and the turmoils and inquietudes that have hitherto beset your guilty progress will vanish by your reverting into better paths. From me, you have nothing to fear. If your welfare will be promoted by my silence on the subject of your history, my silence shall be inviolate. I deem not lightly of my promises, they are given and shall not be recalled. This meeting was casual. Since I believed you to be dead, it could not be otherwise. You err if you suspect that any injury will accrue to you from my life, but you need not discard that error. Since my death is coming, I am not averse to your adopting the belief that the event is fortunate to you. 
Death is the inevitable and universal lot. When or how it comes is of little moment. To stand when so many thousands are falling around me is not to be expected. I have acted a humble and obscure part in the world, and my career has been short, but I murmur not at the decree that makes it so. The pestilence is now upon me. The chances of recovery are too slender to deserve my confidence. I came hither to die unmolested and at peace. All I ask of you is to consult your own safety by immediate flight, and not to disappoint my hopes of concealment by disclosing my condition to the agents of the hospital. Welbeck listened with the deepest attention. The wildness of his air disappeared, and gave place to perplexity and apprehension. "'You are sick,' said he in a tremulous tone, in which terror was mingled with affection. "'You know this, and expect not to recover. No mother, nor sister, nor friend will be near to administer food, or medicine, or comfort, yet you can talk calmly, can be thus considerate of others.' of me whose guilt has been so deep and who has merited so little at your hands wretched coward thus miserable as i am and expect to be i cling to life to comply with your heroic counsel and to fly to leave you thus desolate and helpless is the strongest impulse fain i would resist it but cannot to desert you would be flagitious and dastardly beyond all former acts. Yet to stay with you is to contract the disease and to perish after you. Life, burdened as it is with guilt and ignominy, is still dear. Yet you exhort me to go. You dispense with my assistance. Indeed, I could be of no use. I should injure myself and profit you nothing." I cannot go into the city and procure a physician or attendant. I must never more appear in the streets of this city. I must leave you then. He hurried to the door. Again he hesitated. I renewed my entreaties that he would leave me, and encouraged his belief that his presence might endanger himself without conferring the slightest benefit upon me. Whither should I fly? The wide world contains no asylum for me. I live but on one condition. I came hither to find what would save me from ruin, from death. I find it not. It has vanished. Some audacious and fortunate hand has snatched it from its place, and now my ruin is complete. My last hope is extinct. Yes, Mervyn, I will stay with you. I will hold your head. I will put water to your lips. I will watch night and day by your side. When you die, I will carry you by night to the neighboring field, will bury you, and water your grave with those tears that are due to your incomparable worth and untimely destiny. Then I will lay myself in your bed and wait for the same oblivion." Welbeck seemed now no longer to be fluctuating between opposite purposes. His tempestuous features subsided into calm. He put the candle, still lighted, on the table, and paced the floor with less disorder than at his first entrance. 
His resolution was seen to be the dictate of despair. I hoped that it would not prove invincible to my remonstrances. I was conscious that his attendance might preclude, in some degree, my own exertions, and alleviate the pangs of death, but these consolations might be purchased too dear. To receive them at the hazard of his life would be to make them odious. But if he should remain, what conduct would his companion pursue? Why did he continue in the study when Welbeck had departed? By what motives were those men led hither? I addressed myself to Welbeck. Your resolution to remain is hasty and rash. By persisting in it you will add to the miseries of my condition. You will take away the only hope that I cherished. But however you may act, Colville or I must be banished from this roof. What is the league between you? Break it, I conjure you, before his frauds have involved you in inextricable destruction. Welbeck looked at me with some expression of doubt. I mean, continued I, the man whose voice I heard above. He is a villain and betrayer. I have manifold proofs of his guilt. Why does he linger behind you? However you may decide, it is fitting that he should vanish." "'Alas!' said Welbeck, "'I have no companion, none to partake with me in good or evil. I came hither alone.' "'How!' exclaimed I. "'Whom did I hear in the room above? Someone answered my interrogations and entreaties, whom I too certainly recognized. Why does he remain?' You heard no one but myself. The design that brought me hither was to be accomplished without a witness. I desired to escape detection and repelled your solicitations for admission in a counterfeited voice. That voice belonged to one from whom I had lately parted. What his merits or demerits are, I know not. He found me wandering in the forests of New Jersey. He took me to his home. When seized by a lingering malady, he nursed me with fidelity and tenderness. When somewhat recovered, I speeded hither, but our ignorance of each other's character and views was mutual and profound. I deemed it useful to assume a voice different from my own. This was the last which I had heard, and this arbitrary and casual circumstance decided my choice. This imitation was too perfect and had influenced my fears too strongly to be easily credited. I suspected Welbeck of some new artifice to baffle my conclusions and mislead my judgment. This suspicion, however, yielded to his earnest and repeated declarations. If Colville were not here, where had he made his abode? How came friendship and intercourse between Welbeck and him? By what miracle escaped the former from the river into which I had imagined him forever sunk? "'I will answer you,' said he with candor. "'You know already too much for me to have any interest in concealing any part of my life. You have discovered my existence, and the causes that rescued me from destruction may be told without detriment to my person or fame. When I leaped into the river I intended to perish.' I harbored no previous doubts of my ability to execute my fatal purpose. In this respect I was deceived. Suffocation would not come at my bidding. 
My muscles and limbs rebelled against my will. There was a mechanical repugnance to the loss of life which I could not vanquish. My struggles might thrust me below the surface, but my lips were spontaneously shut and excluded the torrent from my lungs. When my breath was exhausted, the efforts that kept me at the bottom were involuntarily remitted, and I rose to the surface. I cursed my own pusillanimity. Thrice I plunged to the bottom, and as often rose again. My aversion to life swiftly diminished, and at length I consented to make use of my skill in swimming, which has seldom been exceeded, to prolong my existence. I landed in a few minutes on the Jersey shore. This scheme being frustrated, I sunk into dreariness and inactivity. I felt as if no dependence could be placed upon my courage, as if any effort I should make for self-destruction would be fruitless. Yet existence was as void as ever of enjoyment and embellishment. My means of living were annihilated. I saw no path before me. To shun the presence of mankind was my sovereign wish. Since I could not die by my own hands, I must be content to crawl upon the surface, till a superior fate should permit me to perish. I wandered into the center of a wood. I stretched myself on the mossy verge of a brook and gazed at the stars till they disappeared. The next day was spent with little variation. The cravings of hunger were felt, and the sensation was a joyous one, since it afforded me the practicable means of death. To refrain from food was easy, since some efforts would be needful to procure it, and these efforts should not be made. Thus was the sweet oblivion for which I so earnestly panted placed within my reach. Three days of abstinence and reverie and solitude succeeded. On the evening of the fourth I was seated on a rock with my face buried in my hands. Someone laid his hand upon my shoulder. I started and looked up. I beheld a face beaming with compassion and benignity. He endeavored to extort from me the cause of my solitude and sorrow. I disregarded his entreaties and was obstinately silent. Finding me invincible in this respect, he invited me to his cottage, which was hard by. I repelled him at first, with impatience and anger, but he was not to be discouraged or intimidated. To elude his persuasions I was obliged to comply. My strength was gone, and the vital fabric was crumbling into pieces. A fever raged in my veins, and I was consoled by reflecting that my life was at once assailed by famine and disease. Meanwhile, my gloomy meditations experienced no respite. I incessantly ruminated on the events of my past life. The long series of my crimes arose daily and afresh to my imagination. The image of Lodi was recalled— his expiring looks and the directions which were mutually given respecting his sisters and his property. As I perpetually revolved these incidents, they assumed new forms and were linked with new associations. 
the volume written by his father, and transferred to me by tokens which were now remembered to be more emphatic than the nature of the composition seemed to justify, was likewise remembered. It came attended by recollections respecting a volume which I filled, when a youth, with extracts from the Roman and Greek poets. Besides this literary purpose, I likewise used to preserve in it the bank-bills with the keeping or carriage of which I chanced to be entrusted. This image led me back to the leather case containing Lodi's property, which was put into my hands at the time with the volume. These images now gave birth to a third conception, which darted on my benighted understanding like an electrical flash. Was it not possible that part of Lodi's property might be enclosed within the leaves of this volume? In hastily turning it over, I recollected to have noticed leaves whose edges by accident or design adhered to each other. Lodi, in speaking of the sale of his father's West India property, mentioned that the sum obtained for it was forty thousand dollars. Half only of this sum had been discovered by me. How had the remainder been appropriated? Surely this volume contained it. The influence of this thought was like the infusion of a new soul into my frame. From torpid and desperate, from inflexible aversion to medicine and food, I was changed in a moment into vivacity and hope, into ravenous avidity for whatever could contribute to my restoration to health. I was not without pungent regrets and racking fears. That this volume would be ravished away by creditors or plunderers was possible. Every hour might be that which decided my fate. The first impulse was to seek my dwelling and search for this precious deposit. Meanwhile, my perturbations and impatience only exasperated my disease. While chained to my bed, the rumor of pestilence was spread abroad. This event, however, generally calamitous, was propitious to me, and was hailed with satisfaction. It multiplied the chances that my house and its furniture would be unmolested. My friend was assiduous and indefatigable in his kindness. My deportment before and subsequent to the revival of my hopes was incomprehensible, and argued nothing less than insanity. My thoughts were carefully concealed from him, and all that he witnessed was contradictory and unintelligible. At length my strength was sufficiently restored. I resisted all my protector's importunities to postpone my departure till the perfect confirmation of my health. I designed to enter the city at midnight, that prying eyes might be eluded, to bear with me a candle and the means of lighting it, to explore my way to my ancient study, and to ascertain my future claim to existence and felicity. I crossed the river this morning. My impatience would not suffer me to wait till evening. Considering the desolation of the city, I thought I might venture to approach thus near, without hazard of detection. The house at all its avenues was closed. I stole into the back court. A window-shutter proved to be unfastened. I entered, and discovered closets and cabinets unfastened and emptied of all their contents. 
At this spectacle my heart sunk. My books, doubtless, had shared the common destiny. My blood throbbed with painful vehemence as I approached the study and opened the door. My hopes, that languished for a moment, were revived by the sight of my shelves, furnished as formerly. I had lighted my candle below, for I desired not to awaken observation and suspicion by unclosing the windows. My eye eagerly sought the spot where I remembered to have left the volume. Its place was empty. The object of all my hopes had eluded my grasp and disappeared forever. To paint my confusion, to repeat my execrations on the infatuation which had rendered, during so long a time that it was in my possession, this treasure useless to me, and my curses of the fatal interference which had snatched away the prize, would be only aggravations of my disappointment and my sorrow. You found me in this state, and know what followed. End of chapter 21